today on episode number 155 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Jay Parks and Don Zamero share about learning and assessing with multiple choice questions in college classrooms. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Hello, I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and I'm excited today to be welcoming not one but two guests to the program, both here to talk about assessing with multiple choice questions in college classrooms, a book that they wrote together. Let's start off sharing a little bit about Jay Park's background. He's the professor of educational psychology and has been the chair of the Department of Individual, Family, and Community Education since 2010 at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Jay teaches graduate courses in classroom assessment, educational measurement, introductory and intermediate statistics, and research design. He's conducted research in classroom assessment in public schools, at universities, and at a medical school. And our second guest is Dawn Zamero, and she leads the development of pedagogical and assessment solutions related to innovations in blended and online learning models. Dawn's primary professional interests are measuring the effectiveness of new delivery models on student learning, classroom assessment, using learning data to inform instructional and learning practices, and competency-based assessment. Dawn has been working with university faculty and administrators on higher education assessment issues since 1998, and Dawn is the Director of Learning Design and Assessment at the Open Learning Initiative at Stanford University. Jay and Dawn, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. I have a confession to make to both of you and also to everyone listening that, Jay, when you first contacted me about coming on the show to talk about a book about multiple choice questions, I know that this is important for us to study all aspects of our teaching. And so many of us use multiple choice questions in some form of assessment or another, but I wasn't at all prepared for how interested I would be in your book. And I read it and it was interesting from the first page all the way till the end. And I have to, I guess I want to start out with a question for Dawn. Do you get this kind of reaction from other people where they're just expecting, gosh, multiple choice? Really? Are we going to talk about this? And is this something we're going to do? I mean, there sort of seems like there might be this negative reputation about multiple choice questions. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the first re reactions we get, not only from instructors, uh, but from students as well. Either, you know, Jay has been in front of the classroom as a teacher himself, and I've been a faculty consultant for years, and, and from both sides of the, the spectrum, you know, it's, I have to use multiple choice questions in my classroom. What can you do? What advice can you give me 
about uh, how to best use them in the classroom. And so there's, there's already this negative perception of, you know, this is an assessment strategy I really don't want to use, but uh, for a variety of different reasons, I'm going to have to. And this, this reputation is often, uh, we often summarize it, we use this quote in our book where we say, tests don't hurt students, people with tests hurt, stu- hurt students. You know, it's not the multiple choice question that is uh, problematic, it's how the assessment can be used. And, and one of the big issues is when they're not written well, when they're written poorly, you know, students get frustrated, you know, as test takers and, and, you know, getting these assessments. And then the instructors hear complaints from students and kind of throw their hands up and say, you know, you know, I'm teaching a large class, I have to use this assessment format. And, and so it, it kind of becomes this vicious cycle. And what we're trying to do and, and the information that we, we try to do in our own practices and, and share with our colleagues is that when done well, they can be effective learning and assessment tools. And that's really the focus of the major part of, of what we wrote was how do you actually you know, use this as learning tools for yourself, learning tools for your students, and then as a part of the process, work to assess, you know, student mastery and student and different kinds of thinking skills and critical thinking skills with a format that traditionally has been viewed as, you know, simple recall of information and very limited in its applicability. So what we're trying to address is just getting at that, like, that negative reputation, sort of that sense that, you know, this is not really effective or a worthwhile assessment. It's sort of a necessary evil. So we're, we're trying to break that stigma and, you know, bring a different story to ways in which we can do assessment in really effective ways that uh, makes learning and assessing with students uh, more enjoyable for the instructor and for the student. You said something there that I don't want people to miss, and that is that we can use this for assessment, but we also can use it for learning. And we've had a number of episodes in the past that I'll link to in the show notes about retrieval practice. And of course, multiple choice questions can be such a wonderful way for us to do retrieval practice right in the classroom. And as you say in your book, and also as all of the retrieval practice experts talk about how powerful it can be that students get feedback right away. And just how powerful that can be in terms of their own learning and making those connections with those neurons and helping them recall the answers a little bit more. Before I get too carried away, I'm just really interested in all of this and, and, and asking you both so many questions. I'm going to stop myself for just a minute and ask Jay, why did you decide to focus on multiple choice questions? We like multiple choice questions focused on them because they're everywhere. Folks use them all the time, not just in their teaching, not just in classes, but they, they're a fundamental building block of a lot of licensure exams. So students and, and graduates are going to encounter multiple choice questions. Some of the instructors we work with, uh, particularly in professional fields like medicine and law, uh, know that their students are going to encounter these questions on their licensure exams, and so they want to make sure they see them in their, in their education so they're they're a ubiquitous measurement tool, regardless of their uh, how people feel about them. Uh, they're also one of the most well-researched measurement tools available. They've been around uh, for uh, most of a century uh, in education in the United States, and they're we understand them very well. We know how they work. Uh, there's a huge research base on them. One of the key things why a lot of people end up using them is they're very economical. Uh, they're economical in terms of testing real estate that in, say, 
25 minutes or 30 minutes of testing time, you can ask a lot of multiple choice questions of students, where with something like a, even a short essay, you can't get nearly as many topics covered as you could. One of the things that I think happened over the last uh, eight or 10 years is with budget pressures in institutions of higher ed, class sizes have crept back up. And so some instructors have felt forced to use them where before they were using other forms of assessment that uh, more open-ended kinds of things. Uh, one of the reasons we've focused on multiple choice at this point too is the technological applications have really blossomed and, and help us improve the development of the questions, delivery of them, scoring them. You can add video clips now into multiple choice questions and so forth through technological uh, applications. So it's, they're really, uh, they're everywhere, they're widely used, and we can now use them more facilely and flexibly than we ever have before. So they're a great tool in any instructor's toolbox. I love how you phrase that in terms of it being a part of a toolbox that has a lot of other tools in it. And one of the things I always get really sad about is when I hear someone that you talk about the increase in class sizes and you talk about this feeling pressure to use them because of the, just the more transactional nature of things. And I do get really sad when we give up as faculty and just say, this is all we're going to do because I don't think it's going to take mm -hmm. us far enough, but I do feel like they have gotten a bad rap and, and therefore perhaps we're not focusing on the opportunities when they really are the right tool and then if we're going to use them, let's actually use them well. And that's what I really appreciated about your book. And Jay, I wonder if you would just spend a little bit of time telling us what, how would we know if our multiple choice questions were any good or not? How do we construct a good multiple choice question? Sure. I think the, the first thing we need to do is reintroduce ourselves to the multiple choice question. It's one of those things we all know, but we probably haven't thought of in detail. It's almost like a social media friend. The multiple choice question has a couple of fundamental parts to it. The first is that part that gets presented to the examinee that sets up the task for them. And in multiple choice parlance, that's called the stem. It's not called a question because sometimes it's a statement. So it's called a stem. And then the stem is followed by a series of options. And there are two kinds of options. One kind of option is the right answer or the one that students are supposed to select if they know the material, and that's called the key. And then the other ones are called distractors. And that basic structure is the multiple choice question. So a good multiple choice question has a clear stem that tackles just one learning objective and then a series of options, all of which relate in some way to the STEM that could be reasonable answers, but one of which is probably the best or the right answer. And so part of then what makes for a good multiple choice question is one that is clearly learned to learning objectives. It's one that assesses just one thing. It's awfully hard. Multiple choice really helps us there because it's, it's, hard in some respects to build multiple things into a multiple choice. And then another piece of a good multiple choice question I like to talk to faculty about is just, just ask a straight question. No tricks, no traps, no funny games. Just ask a question. The goal in any assessment in a classroom, but particularly here with multiple choice, is to find out which of the students 
have mastered their learning objectives and which have not. And so that's why we're asking the question. Um, there's in the research literature on humor in assessment, there's uh, some disagreement as to whether humor is good, humor is bad. I think the the fundamental issue is it needs to integrate into your broader teaching. If you if you have a, your own sense of humor and you use it daily in class and you want to move that also into your assessments, that's fine. If you're not doing that, don't try to be funny on the test. Uh, it confuses students, uh, can create issues for folks for whom English isn't their first language. And and they're wound up and, and tight anyway. They're not in the mood to get a joke. So a good multiple choice question in the end is, is well-constructed, uh, aligns with learning objectives, and tackles one thing and doesn't try to get cute. You talked about there being two types of options. There's the key, that's the correct answer. And then there are the distractors. In a moment, I'm going to ask Don a little bit more about those distractors. But Jay, let me just ask you to tell me what went wrong. I know what went wrong, but that's because I read your book. But <laughs> I'm sitting down, I'm administering a test recently. And I wound up having three different students come up to me. They're, they are allowed to ask me questions during the test. And because I have English as a second language learners regularly, I, I say, I can be your human dictionary. I don't want you to use your phone to look a word up. But as long right. as me giving you the answer to a vocabulary word, if, if it was a introduction to business, and I say, what's profit? Well, that's, that's a vocabulary that's related to a learning objective. So I'm not going to tell you what that means. But if it's something not related, then I'm happy to do it. So I had three students come up to me. Uh, can you tell me what paramount means? What does paramount mean? What does paramount mean? Uh, Jay, what went wrong in that particular test construction for me for the intro to business where the word paramount was not a learning objective? Well, what it sounds to me like uh, part of my notion of just ask a straight question is don't use language that is officious or pretentious or, or trying to sound more learned uh, use the language that is appropriate to the students and their level of education and where they are in the field. And you, you gave a very good example of uh, in business, profit is an important word. They should know that word. It's reasonable for us to expect them to know that word. And it's content relevant. It's relevant to the learning objectives in the course. And so that's, you have to use that word. Uh, a word like paramount, depending on its setting and, and so forth, is perhaps not as simple as it needs to be to get to that one idea that the question needs to be about. So linguistically keeping our questions as simple as they can be is important because we want to stay out of the student's way and let them show us what they know. We want them getting the question Wrong because they don't know what profit is, not because they don't know what paramount is. And so, which again, is that's not dumbing it down. Dumbing it down would be artificially lowering the language standards. But this is being really clear about what language is content relevant and what language is not, and keeping the language that's not out of students' way. There's another reasonably well-known rule in multiple choice writing uh, that says avoid window dressing. And window dressing in that context is superfluous language. Uh, those are the things that uh, 
are in the question somehow, but don't act, aren't actually necessary to know what students know. And those kinds of things just uh, confuse students more and more. And that's different from, there's a kind of multiple choice question called a vignette-based question where you, you have a short scenario as the stem and then a question. And one of the, the learning goal might be sifting relevant from irrelevant information. Well, in that case, there has to be irrelevant information in the in the STEM so that students can do the sorting. And yet, that's only relevant if the learning goal is to find relevant from irrelevant information. So one of the keys is just to keep the language as simple as it needs to be. One of my favorite studies uh, in this area was done in with elementary kids in math, and they were they were uh, testing both English language learners and native English speakers in math, and they deliberately lowered the reading level of the math questions so that they were well below the grade level of the students they were testing, and they were hoping that would help the English language learners. And the surprising result was everybody's math scores went up because they got the language out of the way and let the math come through. So it's a, it's a well-known research-based strategy is to keep the language out of the student's way. So Don, we get to you now. <laughs> we get to talk about these distractors. Tell us one more time what a distractor is and then tell us why they're so important to get right. Sure, Bonnie. So um, as Jay mentioned, one of the key pieces of multiple choice question are the options and the distractors refer to the incorrect options as a part of the multiple choice question. And uh, I've actually had some questions from faculty members as to why we use the term distractor. And, you know, essentially it's good measurement. We, we do want students who don't know the concept to be enticed or, as the name implies, distracted by an incorrect option and select it because they, if they haven't really mastered the learning objective that's contained in that question, then they're probably more susceptible to pick an option that is based on a common mistake or a common mis misconception that they hold. And so the distractors aren't just incorrect answer choices, but should be based on those mistakes or misconceptions that students, you know, the questions they ask in class or in conversation with students that the errors that you see sort of as a part of the classroom discussion or homework assignments, you know, including those as a part of a multiple choice question is, is good measurement and good assessment. And it actually helps with diagnostics. So students who pick a, a particular misconception, if we're able to give them individualized feedback or feedback to an entire class, we can say, you know, option B, uh, was the incorrect answer choice, and here's why. Here's the misconception that this is addressing. And uh, similarly, if we're looking at performance of an entire class, and a large portion of the class has pick, picked a particular distractor, maybe we didn't teach it well enough, or maybe there's a misconception that I need to go back and re-instruct on, because if 30, 40% of my class are all picking that same distractor, there might be an issue with uh, the way it was presented, uh, either in the textbook or other instructional resources or the way we talked about it in class. And so there's some really helpful information and diagnostics that we can get uh, from the way from the distractors and how we actually build them. And I, I do want to point out that there are two common distractors that faculty members often write 
that are not good measurement. And those are using none of the above and all of the above as answer choices. And this is, I would say, I don't know if uh, Jay would agree, but this is the number one question when I'm giving workshops or talking about effective assessment strategies and multiple choice questions. Almost invariably, I get uh, asked this question every time, why should I not use those two options as uh, distractors? And in the case of none of the above, if my learning objective, you know, to use your example, Bonnie, is that students should understand the concept of profit and the correct answer is none of the above, have I really assessed whether or not they understood the concept of profit? Mm -hmm. They can eliminate negative examples of that definition, but I really haven't assessed whether or not they've mastered the definition of profit. In most cases, though, none of the above uh, is used as a distractor, incorrect answer choice, and students know that it's sort of a throwaway option. Rarely is it the correct answer. And so they, elim they most often can easily eliminate it. So as, as Jay talked about, and, and uh, we also talk about in terms of item writing, the number of uh, distractors, there's no hard and fast rules. Uh, research has shown, you know, above four or five answer choices, it's really hard to write good enough at distractors that discriminate pretty well that students actually pick them. And if some, some research has also shown that, you know, three may be sufficient enough if, again, the fourth and fifth options um, really aren't plausible. If you're going to put none of the above as one of the answer choices, then it's probably best to only have uh, three choices. Similarly, uh, we, we often see faculty members use all of the above as one of the choices. They want to know if students can see if there's a series of elements that cling together in a list. The problem with that in a multiple choice format, there are other formats where that be, may be more appropriate, but in a multiple choice question, if the correct answer is all of the above, let's say there are five answer choices and it's the last one, students only need to know that two of the four in the list are correct to know that all of the above is the correct answer. So we've really only assessed partial knowledge. We, we, we don't know which one students actually get, but just that they at least can identify two in the list are, are correct. Similarly, if they can eliminate one of the options and all of the above is uh, in the list, then they can also automatically eliminate all of the above. So now students are sort of doing their test-taking strategies. And um, now instead of you know five answer choices, they've eliminated one plus all of the above. So now they could guess from three, even without having uh, much knowledge of the concept. And so those distractors are really helpful. They're just, they're good measurement when the answer choices are written based on common misconceptions. Um, they can provide diagnostic in information for both individual students as well as to you about groups of students and what choices they're picking. And they should all be plausible choices and not based on, uh, you know, none of the above or all of the above strategies. I had heard previously about, and one of the things that Jay mentioned previously, don't use humor in the distractors that, I mean, I, I think most of us probably are aware that that's not the richest test taking or, or administrating <laughs> experience. But one of the things that I think is important to ask you about is there, there are some times where it's easy for me to formulate these distractors. A, a, an example might be there are four functions of a manager. There's planning, organizing, leading, and controlling. And I can put a question up there and the goal, the learning outcome for me would be that they could identify 
which form of management was being described. But there are other times where it's much more crystal clear what the right answer is. And I know I'm just kind of making it up with the distractors. I know I don't do a good job always in those cases of coming up with these good distractors that are based on common misperceptions. And what I think I'm hearing you say is that I'm way better off to slow myself down and, and really reflect on that and, and try to suss out what might be better distractors than just making up a word. Because I do that. So I, just, I don't know if this is terrible, but I'll admit it on the show. It's okay. I've admitted failure before, but I'll sometimes, you know, I'll just make something up that sounds plausible to see if they can distinguish between the actual answer and the thing I made up that wasn't plausible. But I think I'm hearing you say that that's not a good practice. Jay can also comment on this as well, but I would say that that is, you are correct, that is not a good practice. And one check that you can do as an instructor if you're having difficulty, you know, writing those distractors or those incorrect options is, can you explain why that answer choice was wrong? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so even if you're not providing feedback, either, you know, in the ter- terms of written feedback, or if you're using technology to deliver feedback to students, but um, if you had to write to the student why that answer choice was wrong, your explanation would be, this is a nonsensical made up word. And if that is uh, the reason why you've selected that as a distractor, then that's probably not your best strategy. There should be some rationale behind why that term or concept is related to the question and related to the learning objective. And you could say, like you said, the four practices of management, you can say, here's why this is not an example of this particular yes. practice, Yep. right? And so I, I think that's a, a good, like you said, slow down, you know, don't force, there's no hard and fast rule even across questions. If you know, most of your questions have four answer choices, but you can only come up with three plausible ones, that's better than trying to either use humor or make up a term that might sound reasonable if you can't explain it in a, in a, in a rational way that really addresses the learning objective, then it's probably not a good distractor. This was really helpful to me. I mean, so much of the book was incredibly helpful to me, but just because I want to not play games when it comes to testing, like you said earlier, Jay, I, I want to just have a high regard for my students and it can be stressful to take a test. I don't like to take tests either. And I've been at this for a long time and I don't like to get things wrong. I mean, it's a common human thing to not want to fail or be wrong. We have to fight against that. And so I never want to play games or take it lightly that, you know, th- that the test is not something that can be stressful for them and how to make it as low stress as I can while still really measuring those learning outcomes. There's always going to be some stress and some of that's actually good stress when we're under stress. I get stressed when I do this podcast, but it's a good kind of stress. It brings energy, right? So it's not that all of the stress is bad, but I don't want to be playing games for them. I want to really respect them and their own learning process. And Don, what you just said to me, I really will take that away as far as can I explain why the answer choice was wrong And if the answer was, I made it up, ha, 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 it's kind of a little disparaging. It doesn't represent how I want to be as a teacher. I can do better than that. That's an excellent insight. And I think the other way I'd recast it is it's not so much an error as it is a missed opportunity. Hmm. So what what else can you learn about your students? And and the answer may be, as Don says, nothing else. Uh, So why spend the ink? on an option that isn't going to tell you anything yeah. about what your students know or don't know. And so when I'm thinking about distractors, it's it's not so much about doing it wrong. It's about capitalizing on this opportunity that we have uh, 
in this question to learn something about what they do or don't know about the learning objectives. Oh, I really like that. Uh, that that puts like I think less less for me on a pass fail grade, <laughs> and it, and it just like you See, said, you it's... thought there were, you thought there wasn't much to this multiple choice thing. <laughs> Not until I read your book, and then now I've really enjoyed how much you've challenged me to rethink some of these. Well, before we go on to the recommendations segment, I don't want to miss out on two questions, so I'll, I'll kind of move us along. One is for Don, tell us a little bit about how technology has allowed us to capitalize on these multiple choice questions. So I I think uh, Jay alluded to in in um, sort of his description of you know why 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 are we focusing on multiple choice questions and I, I think one of the changes that we've seen in the last decade is the ways in which we can leverage technology to help support the entire assessment cycle instruction assessment and feedback and and part of that loop and ways in which we can both create the questions themselves. We can deliver questions uh, more quickly and sort of in 24-7 access to students. So we could give formative assessments, you know, low-stakes assessments where students, uh, I think you mentioned earlier, retrieval practice, right? Students get op- multiple opportunities to engage with the material in uh, and get feedback immediately on uh, what they're doing. And they can do that outside the classroom before they come to class. They could do it actually in higher stakes situations uh, with technology. They can take assessments on smartphones and tablets. So I think the technology has really expanded our ability to do some assessments and diagnostics in ways that we hadn't been able to, to do in the past. And one, one such strategy I think that um, we've seen is we can actually use technology to, to scale up you know, our, our questions and create item pools so that which are, uh, you know, a, a bank of questions that we use across different semesters. And uh, you can have students take assessments whereby one student is getting, you know, one question on a learning objective and a different student who may be sitting right next to them in a computer lab could be getting a, a very different question, but again, on the same learning objective. And so our ability to create item pools and item banks with technology and then deliver, you know, randomized uh, questions and to deal with some security issues, depending on how you're doing your assessment. So in a low stakes environment, maybe you don't you know, care if students collaborate and work together, but in other high stakes environments, maybe they're, uh, you're teaching an online class and you want, you know, your, these assessments are kind of giving, are giving them uh, course credit. And so you, you can put some security measures in using technology. And, and also, so that's outside of the classroom, but also inside the classroom, we can deliver um, formative assessments, as I mentioned, sort of with a smartphone or tablet or, uh, you know, some faculty members have purchased clicker systems whereby you can say, okay, we're going to check on management strategies. And you, you know, pose a multiple choice question, you know, on the screen and students all submit their answer in a clicker question. Then you can see the distribution of students in your class in real time and say, wow, half of you really didn't, you know, this is the wrong, everybody picked C and this was the wrong management strategy. Let's talk about why. Mm-hmm. So that sort of real-time feedback to you as the instructor and to the students in the classroom that we hadn't been able to do before, I think is really advantageous way in which we've leveraged technology. And Jay, for our last question in this part of the show, how can we involve our students? 
Well, it's so important to involve our students. After all, the the whole goal here is learning, not assessing. We want students learning. And uh, one of the things I love to tell people is that the, the Latin root of the word assess is assidere, which means to sit beside. And that's such a different mental picture of where we should be relative to our students. We should be beside them as we assess them, not in a confrontational position in front or facing them or whatnot. And and I think that's important because it it gives us a way to think about, there are folks who love to think of when they give a test, they think like a police officer or a, a gatekeeper rather than thinking as a facilitator and an encourager and a, and a coach and a teacher. And uh, there's a ton of strategies uh, tactically that you can use to involve students. So if you think about the classic study guide for an exam, uh, my study guides tend to be much more involved at the beginning of the semester than they are at the end of the semester because I'm I'm scaffolding or supporting the students more at the beginning to understand my expectations. When I say uh, some of my multiple choice questions are going to have applications, they're going to involve you applying what we've learned to to real world situations. What exactly does that look like? So I give them examples of of multiple choice questions so they can see it and see what I mean by application. So there are just so many things you can do. There's a whole set of techniques around collaborative testing where you can have students working together in various ways on tests that unnerve some people, but there are ways to maneuver through the concerns and the questions about how to do that. So there are ways even during the test to involve students in their learning and assessment together at the same time. And, and then after the test, there are things like have them write about the questions they missed and do activities that come back as feedback, but could be broader activities about, well, where was this material on the test in the book, in the lectures, in the course site, uh, to help them understand how the assessment and the learning tie together and are really just different complexions of the same thing, which is, are they mastering the material? Do they know what they need to know to move on to the next course or to move into the profession? So, one of my favorite uh, ways to think about this uh, is where can you pull professional ethics or professional skills into the assessment itself? Hmm. One of my favorite examples that we write about in the book is a professor teaching an environmental science course, and he has a no late work policy. Why does he have a no late work policy? Because if you're an environmental engineer on the job and you submit a bid on a contract two days after it's due, you don't get the contract. But he explains that to his students. And he says, I have a late policy because I'd rather have you lose some points in my class than lose that contract and perhaps your job two years from now. So pulling what's important in the profession into the way we do our assessments, I think, is an awesome way to, to make assessments more meaningful for our students and to involve them in this work. That is such a more student-oriented way of having high expectations. And we have talked about that before in the show as far as just having a student-centered teaching philosophy doesn't mean that we lower our expectations. We can have superbly expectations and then have our students delight us and even exceeding what we ever thought they could do. But this transparency is so vital in explaining this is why I don't allow late work and 
it's, it's actually to serve you, to build good habits. I just, that's just fabulous. I love it. Thanks for sharing that example. And this is the point in the show where we each get to give some recommendations and I will try to be concise on mine because I want to leave plenty of time for the two of you. I was so inspired by a website and a course that's a free open online course coming this summer from a former podcast guest by the name of Mike Wesh. He has built an Anthropology 101 course, and I'm going to post a link to it in the show notes. It is absolutely gorgeous as far as site design, tons of beautiful images, tons of wonderful videos. It just, it begs you to keep scrolling and scrolling and clicking and being inspired and encouraged and challenged. He has the whole thing framed around 10 lessons, very rich media based, 10 challenges. An example of some of the challenges would be talking to strangers, try something new, the unthing experiment humans of my stuff, hero stories, your manifesto. And then for each one of those 10 challenges, he has 10 showcases where the students actually submit their own work and their demonstration of learning of these various challenges that are all based on his 10 lessons. It's just a wonderful, wonderful site. He's a brilliant teacher. And I think any of us that would go have a look at ANTH101.com, which again, I'll link to in the show notes, will just be inspired and, and left wanting to do more with our teaching. And Dawn, I'm going to pass it over to you for your recommendation. Thanks, Bonnie. I have two things that I would recommend. One pertains to some of the work that I do in, in higher education, and it's a weblog by Michael Feldstein and Phil Hill called eLiterate. And it addresses uh, topics around teaching and learning in higher education, uh, specifically those impacted by technology. And I found uh, the posts by the co-publishers and some of the featured articles there to be really informative as we as educators and folks that work with faculty and faculty development, as we try to sift through the landscape of what's happening in higher education and educational technology, it often feels like we're inundated by choices, mm. choices about ways in which we can help support our learning and we can help uh, student um, social connections and we can engage in research around educational technology and, and kind of filtering through ways in which to most effectively use those educational technologies and it's sort of distilling some of the research and applications. I, I found this website to really be accessible to the educator and the faculty members who are trying to, to figure out, you know, where can I go for some advice about how, you know, how this applies to what I'm trying to do in my practice. And a, most, a more recent uh, article that I found particularly helpful is Can There Be a Microscope of the Mind that really looks at machine learning and cognitive science and distills it into a digestible format of saying, how do, how do we know how students learn? What does the research say about that? And then how does that affect what I do in the, in the te teaching and what I do in the classroom? So I think that particular resource, and it's at M feldstein.com is where you can find that weblog. And then the other resource is more about sort of personal and professional growth that I've used uh, in my past in various leadership positions. And it's called The First 90 Days by Michael Watkins. It's geared towards executive level 
leaders, but it's also applicable, I think, to anyone coming into a new management position about how do you define your role and thinking about those first three months on the on the job, how is it that you want to set yourself up for success? And also, how do you work with uh, those around you to help uh, support your you know, personal and professional growth as a manager and as a leader in the organization. And really those, those first, you know, night, first 90 days on the job are where you establish your relationships, where you, you sort of set precedent for how you're going to engage as a leader in the organization. And it, I found some helpful tips about um, how I could use that time, that transition time when taking on a new position to really be successful in what I'm trying to do. It's such a wonderful resource. I've recommended it so many times. It's it's fabulous. And I'm oh. so glad you brought it up on the show because we've never had it come up before. So thank you. And Jay, let me pass it over to you. Thank you, Bonnie. I want to recommend the podcast Manager Tools and its sister podcast Career Tools. And they're at manager-tools.com. They focus on very practical advice. It's not management theory. Uh, it's very corporate focused. It's meant for folks in a business context, but so much of what they discuss transfers so well into higher education. I use a lot of their tools uh, with my advising with my own students, and I use it with colleagues, and I use it in my own work around the university day in and day out. They've got very concrete practical advice on things like uh, how to run an effective meeting or how and when to write thank you notes, Mm. which you'd be surprised there's, there's a fabulous podcast about how and when to write thank you notes. They have cover a lot of other routine activities and, and they're just always fabulous. And their, their method is to talk about here are the three things you do about this on Tuesday morning. It's not theoretical. It's not uh, high minded stuff. It's real practical. They have a 45 minute podcast on how to shake hands. <laughs> it's, just, it's just fabulous stuff. So I ask students, if a student says to me, would you write me a recommendation? I say, you go listen to the Career Tools podcast on how to manage your references first. And then if you're willing to do that, I will write you a recommendation. So I've been listening to them for years, uh, and I can point to dozens of their tools that I use here on the here at the university myself. I just I can't think highly enough of them, and they've been at this for 12 years now. Well, Don and Jay, thank you so much for joining me on today's Teaching in Higher Ed. And thanks for introducing me to your wonderful book. It was an absolute delight to read. It was exactly what you say multiple choice questions should be in the sense of there's no, there's no, I'm trying to think of how to explain it. it. It's not written in such a way to make it not engaging to any of us. It's written just very practically and really helpfully and encouraging. And, and I just enjoyed reading it from cover to cover. It wasn't work for a second. It was just a delight, but also in terms of really, really challenged me. So just thanks so much for joining us today and participating in the community. Well, I'm so glad to hear you liked the book and found it useful. And we, I really appreciate you having us on. Yes, thank you so much. It was just fabulous having both Dawn and Jay on the program. And as I said Previously, it sure was a delight to me to get to know so much more about using multiple choice questions in my teaching through their work. And I'm just so grateful they came on the show. And I'm also grateful that you decided to listen today and to be a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. 
If you'd like to have access to what the guests recommend each week on the show and what I do as well, and also to get an article about teaching or productivity each week that you don't have to remember to go look at, you can subscribe to the weekly update and you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. When you subscribe, you automatically receive a e-guide that has 19 tools that I have found to be really helpful in technology that helps me either facilitate learning or be a little bit more productive. Back to the intro of the show so I can be more present for my students and other people that I am close to and are important to me. Thanks for listening and we've got some great episodes coming up and I look forward to seeing you then. Take care. Take care.